Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 273, is recorded live February 11, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the state of Michigan where we have returned to the time of year that it should be. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. Glad to be here. Maybe a little horse. A little horse? Yeah. Talking too much? or? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> as, as, <laughs> as our audience doesn't know, we have been discussing lots of things before the uh, presentation here. Yeah, the, uh, we, it's almost like a show before the show. Uh, some some things we're working on is just some of the directions of, of how we want to handle and things we want to do. Uh, I know if you've been looking at TalkShoe to get in the chat room, you haven't been seeing it because we haven't been syncing with TalkShoe for a while. We're posting up there, but we haven't been doing the chat room, so we got to figure that out. Uh, if you have any feedback, any things you'd like to see us try, drop us a line at uh, the show at scubobsess.com. And that will get to us. Uh, also, I had a few people this week who had some questions. Uh, we are still behind on show notes, so we're going to get that caught up. But for this week, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We have a few articles. Uh, let's see. This first one is about some uh, stolen scuba gear. Uh, uh, stolen gear uh, or scuba gear is stolen from Eden Rock. An estimated $3,400 worth of scuba equipment belonging to two employees was stolen Friday afternoon from the Eden Rock Dive Center in Georgetown. Andrew Barnes, whose new BC and other equipment were stolen, said, These are tools of our trade. Mr. Barnes said one of the company's instructors left the storeroom unlocked between 1 and 3 p.m., and someone entered and stole two BCs, regulators, and other equipment. As an instructor, you need the best equipment, he said, and you need to know it inside and out. He said he and Joe Morris, whose equipment was also stolen, will still be able to dive with gear from the shop. I've been here nine years and never had anything stolen, Mr. Barnes said. Cayman is changing. He said police officer came to the store and took the report but never filed it, or hasn't filed it yet. In the meantime, they are alerting dive shops and other places where the theft might, or the thieves may try to sell the gear. Thieves or thief, I guess, depends how many there are. Mr. Barnes said it could take him a year to save up for another BCD. Ouch. Yeah, that that that's not good. Uh, so this is this was out of Cayman, the CaymanCompass.com is where the article was posted. Uh, just... As a side note, when I was uh, in school and in dive school in California years and years ago, they recommended that on all your cars you don't put any decals on it that you're a diver or any anything like that. Oh yeah, because it's like wow, maybe if we pop his trunk, he's going to have something in there we won't. <laughs> yeah, like, wow. uh, the same thing for dive or for jumping. You don't leave your rigs in the car so somebody can see them. And if you got a parachute emblem on the back, they think, I wonder what's in their trunk. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had, uh, my nephew went to St. Kitts, uh, when he was studying to be a vet. And that one of the rules that they had there was you never locked your car because all it did was make, make the thieves break your windows. And, well, like, like you say, uh, the purpose of a lock is to keep an honest person out. Yeah. And so down there, what they would do 
is sometimes they wouldn't just unlock the door. They'd roll the window down because he had, he had his window broken once and the door was unlocked. They were just too lazy to, you know, to even tech, check the handle. They just broke the window and grabbed what they could reach from the front. So you never kept any change in the, the center console. You, you know, you didn't have a stereo in the car. Basically a car was just a, a wagon that you jumped in and drove around in. It's unfortunate that happens, but it does. Yeah, so some good advice there. Uh, Richard Branson uh, was left bloodied and cut after being attacked by a stingray. Uh, This one is is a fairly recent article, just about a day or so ago. The billionaire had left with injuries after being attacked by stingrays. He sustained a cut to his head, which required stitches after he walked into a glass door a few days later. The businessman was bitten in the arm by a fish, which famously killed Steve Irwin while swimming off the Grand Cayman coast. He pointed to his wounds, writing, been in the wars in Cayman Islands, bitten by a shark. Stingrays are technically part of the shark family. Speaking from experience, uh, the executive said, uh, we joined renowned ocean conservationist Guy Harvey to see the rays up close at Stingray City Sandbar. We are surrounded by stingrays as well as stunning coral reefs and tropical fish. But the rays were feeding all around and, and mistook yours truly for food. Suddenly I felt a painful sensation on the wrist. It must have been one heck of a painful bite. Rays are actually part of the shark family. So now I've been bitten by a shark. Well, it shows you he did not have a wetsuit on. That's a disadvantage of warm water. Yeah, you're a little uh, thin in protection. Well, it might not look like flesh or a fish or something that had that black wetsuit or something on. Yeah. It looks actually, they, they show both entries. They show the shark bite or the stingray stab or bite, and they show the stitches from walking into the door, and I think the door is actually more dangerous. Potentially it could have been. <laughs> yeah. You look at the above his eye. I mean, that's a pretty ugly wound he has there. Yeah. I, I don't think the, the, the fish that bit him was the same one that killed Steve Irwin, though. And the way it's written, it looks like it was. Oh, you mean the exact same one? Well, it said... Uh, the businessman was bitten on the arm by the fish, which famously killed Steve Arwen. Oh wow! Yeah, that now that's a that that would be a stingray that gets around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the lifespan of one is, but yeah, this, this, so they're they're actually technically separate ones, and I'm sure there's different sizes and capabilities and habits. You know, they, you probably have some that are a little more aggressive than others, but but I've never heard of somebody being bit by one. This is a first. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is just a matter of. I mean, it was just a really tiny wound that he had. Because with Steve Irwin, yes. it was the uh, a reflex action. He had actually stepped onto the stingray. Yeah. And it flipped its tail up and the barb went, you know, which is its defense mechanism. And in this case, a bite. Like, like you said, I don't think I've heard of anybody getting bit. So I'd be wondering if part of their program was actually feeding the rays. I mean, were they putting food in the water and the rays were trying to get to that food? Yeah, I did. To me, you have to watch out for that. It's like feeding the mores. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes me cringe whenever I see it. Because it's always somebody who, who who's experienced, and you think for every experienced guy you can get away with it. There's 30 people who have no clue who are going to lose a finger. Yeah, I, well, I like the ones who take the fish and put the fin in their mouth. Oh, God. Then it's like I keep waiting for that to get kissed. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of horror stories there. Well, here is... Uh, a fleet of 20 tall ships to race across Great Lakes, and that's this summer. Yes. They're scheduled to visit the Great Lakes 
Uh, one of the ships includes a Viking longship replica, a 170-foot Spanish galleon, making the debut on the American freshwater seas. Uh, the El Galleon, what was that, Andulica, Andulicia? A 495-ton authentic wooden replica of the Galleon, galleon was part of the Spanish of Spain's West Indies fleet. <coughs> Excuse me. And the dragon hailed uh, Ferhar, a replica Viking longship built in Norway, are crossing the Atlantic Ocean this year to join the tall ship's challenge returning to Great Lakes in 2016. The fleet will sail the lakes over the course of four months with scheduled port stops and races on Lake Ontario, Erie, Huron, Michigan, and Superior between July and September. The organized tall ship show last visited Michigan in 2013. In between each of the ports, they will be racing, said Aaron Short, the challenge manager for the Rhode Island-based Tall Ships America. Although there are numerous tall ships that are homeported around Great Lakes, the challenge begins uh, brings them all together into a large international fleet with a strict uh, with a structured schedule, said Short. The entire roster has not been announced, but the fleet will make a port at at least eight times in the Great Lakes this summer. So they're scheduling Toronto for the 1st through 3rd of July, uh, Fairport Harbor, Ohio, July 8th through 10th, Bay City, Michigan, 15th through 17th, Chicago, Illinois, July 27th through 31st, Green Bay, Wisconsin, the 5th through the 7th, Duluth, Minnesota, the 18th through the 21st, Erie, Pennsylvania, September 8th through 11th, and Brockville, Ontario, 17th through the 18th. Individual ships may choose other stops at various ports around the Great Lakes between those dates, said Short. Public tours are available during port stops that typically coincide with festival featuring music, food, and large crowd tickets are sold for 60 to 90 minutes short sales, but those are definitely the first tickets to run out. Short said to check out each individual port in advance of the events for ticketing information. In between the port stops, the ship's race will test cruise ships' handling skills because of different rigging and ship designs. There are handicaps built into the race, which starts offshore and goes to a predetermined, uh, predetermined shore finish line. Since the tall ships began racing Great Lakes in 2001, Bay City has hosted its tall ship celebration five times, taking home Port of the Year honors in 2001, 2006, Chicago won in 2003, 2010. In 2013, the race challenged and festival attracted 75,000 visitors to Bay City, an estimated economic impact of more than $8 million. Now, uh, the only Michigan stop is Bay City? Well, it looks that way. They said they may make individual stops in between the, the primary dates. Because mm-hmm. didn't, didn't they do, I mean, hasn't uh, South Haven or Muskegon been on that before? They've had, I don't think they've had all 20 or the, the large number. Oh, so these are like the... So these are like, this is like the ports where they're all going to be at. Right. And the rest of them, it's up to individual ports to negotiate saying, hey, stop here. Well, you t- you, you see uh, Navy Pier, Chicago, you could handle 20 big ships. Oh, yeah. Benton Harbor, St. Joe, I don't think so. No, it, it would be fun. But, uh, yeah, they would be pretty well, they'd be lining the pier both sides. <laughs> right. Uh, it'd be great economic boost, though, wouldn't it? Well, I, yeah, but I, I will probably... Make an effort to go see some of that anyway. Yeah, that would be nice to uh, if they sail there in one day with a good good breeze to get out and get some aerial photography of that. That would be quite interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at the dates. I'm I'm trying to think of when they would have time. You know, is there much of a span in there? Well, got... you figure from Bay City to Chicago is ten days. Yeah, it doesn't take you ten days to get down there. Right. I mean, they've there's a little bit of time either side. Now, does the, like the Friends Goodwill, do they tend to go on this 
I'm not sure that can that is considered a tall ship. Oh, not tall enough. <laughs> well, no, I went to the one I was in uh, California when they had a tall ship, and you're talking about like the Eagle. Uh huh. You you know the one I'm talking about? No, I have no idea. That's the one they did the uh, training on the Coast Guard. I believe it's the Coast Guard. So it's like three three major masts, very large ship. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of vessel, and those guys were. I mean, they were huge ships. Just wonderful to look at, though. Well, I'm looking at the Viking ship. I mean, I'm not considering that a. It's a. I guess the mast is fairly tall. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's the ship itself isn't. I wouldn't mind. I mean, crossing the Atlantic Ocean with the law a Viking longship, that could be an interesting trip. Oh, certainly. I mean that that is an adventure in itself. I'm, I'm, and again, these... same thing with that. That would be quite yeah. something. I'm going through the photos. Those are some nice photos I've got here. Yeah. Uh, there's one of them that have the White House, lighthouse. I'm trying to get back to it. Here we go. I'm trying to figure out where that lighthouse is. It looks like a Lake Michigan lighthouse. Actually, looking at a couple of those, though, that it could, in fact, be the same size as the French Goodwill. There's a couple of shots of something that small. Well, you know that they, you know, there's probably a few ships that might not do the whole circuit. Yeah. And that probably takes quite an effort to get some of these ships to show up. Really pretty, though, aren't they? Oh, they are. It's certainly worth seeing. But the thing, I'm, I'm looking at the Chicago date. You're never going to, it just, it's, there's too many people in Chicago. You know, I can see why Biz, Bay City, it raises $8 million for them. Because of all the locations, I can't think of another one. That'd be the only location I'd really go to. Maybe, what's all, uh, no, Toronto, that's going to be packed. Uh, you know, Green Bay. That's going to be busy. Well, you want to go where the people are because they can do the tours, mm-hmm. and you can make money because it does cost you money to do this. Oh yeah, you've you've got to have a crew. So definitely, you, you're going to hit Chicago. Yeah. Oh, well, certainly you would. I'm just thinking for me as a as a somebody who wants to go see them. Am mm-hmm. I going to go with, into the big crowds to try and and get a view? So Bay City makes sense. Uh, Bay City would be a good stop. And what was there's one Ohio Fairpoint Harbor Fairpoint Harbor. Not familiar with that, but that you know, those are probably be my two locations. I would, I think, I would try. Mm-hmm. And then you've got one here. Congress approves a new heavy Great Lakes icebreaker. Let's see it come up. And the semi-annual bill that authorizes U.S. Coast Guard fundraising for the next two years, the Coast Guard Authorization Act of 2015 passed by voice vote in the U.S. House of Representatives on Monday, February 1st, approves a bill the Senate passed in December. It now moves to President Barack Obama's desk for signature. The bill greenlights something Great Lakes shipping has been clamoring for in earnest for several years, another heavy icebreaker comparable to the U.S. CG Mackinac to clear shipping lanes and harbors during the winter. Whether or not the Great Lakes would get another heavy icebreaker was not certain as the region was competing with Arctic waters for another ship. But the bill approved design steps for new icebreaker in both the Great Lakes and polar regions amid $1.9 billion for new facilities, vessel, and aircraft. This bipartisan bill authorizes the U.S. Coast Guard for two years and strengthens its ability to recapitalize its aging, aging fleet of cutters and aircraft that are decades past their prime, said uh, Representative Duncan Hunter, Republican from California. Senator Gary Peters, Democrat from Michigan, called the new Great Lakes Cutter a much-needed addition 
Peters pushed to ship in 2015, saying where in the existing fleet had reduced the ability to clear shipping lanes, particularly during the previous two winters when ice coverage reached historic levels on the lakes. The heavy cutter Mackinac suffered propulsion damage in early 2015 that significantly reduced its capabilities at the time. A Canadian heavy cutter from Montreal was dispatched to Lake Superior last April to aid more than a dozen ships trapped in ice at Whitefish Bay. A month prior, a team of breakers weren't able to get the freighter Arthur Anderson into port in Lake Erie, causing the ship to turn around within signal of uh, within sight of its destination to head home with empty cargo holds. Congress would still need to approve funding the estimated two hundred forty million ship through either a budget bill rider or a regular appropriation process. The Coast Guard operates nine icebreakers in the Great Lakes, the largest being the Mackinac, launched in 2005 as a replacement for the original Cutter Mackinac, which is now a museum ship docked permanently at Mackinac City. The new Mackinac will be built at uh, Marinette Marine Shipyard in Marinette, Wisconsin, the same yard that built the U.S. Navy new class of the littoral combat ships. The authorization bill also includes Peter's added provision requiring federal agency access freshwater oil spill response under heavy ice cover. The Coast Guard has said it's not fully prepared for an oil spill under ice, which chief concern among opponents to the Enbridge Incorporated Pipeline of the Straits of Mackinac. See, it's amazing how they can connect that to everything else. Well, what's interesting to me is a lot of our stealth aircraft cost a lot more than that one ship is at $240 million. Right. And it's sort of funny, too, is you look at the last couple of years where we've had lots and lots of ice cover. Mm-hmm. This year, we've only got 6% ice cover in the first week of February. Right. Yeah, and, and it's we're, we're turning the corner where even if you did get some ice, it's not going to last long. You know, a couple big winds, and uh, I think this is probably one of the least ice covers we've had in a while. It is for Lake Michigan because Erie, of course, is frozen because it's shallow, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. Uh, Lake Huron, it's pretty much solid. Most of Superior is, but Ontario and Michigan, hardly any ice cover. Yeah, I was just driving by the lake in the last week, and it was open. But we still need it for the ice that was normally here. Well, what what they're going to do is that this would, uh, you know, in the in a in a in a normal winter, you could always use it in Superior. Oh, you're, yeah. You're extending the season. But when we've had the ice coverage in Lake Michigan, it would be nice for them to make a couple passes, uh, you know, maybe a pass a week down and open up some ports. So the I, you know, when you look at talk about efficiency and and moving product, you still can't beat cost per ton uh, for for shipping. Correct. Cholesterol medications and diving. Now I, I put this in here because Dan. Again, I keep hawking there. If, you're, if you've not joined Dan, you need to. And even if you don't, you need to go to their site. Uh, they've got tremendous amount of information that is something all divers can use. I, I thought this was a good one because as we are the aging divers, a tremendous number of us yes. are taking cholesterol medications. And it was interesting to see what they had to say about it. Not only that one, but the other aspect, if you look to the site that we're talking about, there's another part that said uh, other cardiovascular heart uh, FAQs. The other common one for people our age is hypertension. Mm-hmm. So just to look at those two items alone is a good reminder of the health you need to be taken care of and to be aware of the side effects. If you're if you're a pilot, 
every every two years when you get your physical, they make a list of what you do take, including all the benign medications. And the FAA has done a really good report of looking at the effects on most people. And you, you know, they give more attention to people who are on medication, a lot more than if you're driving your car. When you say they give you more attention, you mean they, they spend more time in making sure that you're capable to fly? And or you're not taking the ones that they consider uh, to be prohibitive because of the okay. potential side effects. I mean, just taking some anti-decongestants mm-hmm. would not allow you to fly for 24 hours. Okay. Because of the potential that you could have from sleepiness, inattentiveness, uh, things like that, that probably wouldn't happen, but, and that's what they look at, but th- these are very good. It still comes down to taking care of yourself when you're young, because the magic number here seems to be 55. Okay. And history from when, you know, your parents, what do they have? Because as the deeper you go, the more problems that this kind of stuff can create. Yeah, it's it's good advice. Anytime you have a change in health conditions or medication, is to double check. Dan uh, is an excellent resource for finding that out. You know, of course, check with your doctor first. But uh, sometimes you may need to have them reference Dan because if your doctor's not a dive health specialist, they may either be over cautious or not cautious enough. Right. And with that spoken about, the next one is not exactly medication, but eat chocolate before diving. You know, that'd be That's a, the next article. Yeah. So this one's out of scubadiverlife.com, and the, the article is talking about there's a lot of discussion among researchers about the variables and uh, specifics of how cocoa works positively in the cardiovascular health, physical performance, and reducing risk of DCS, but it does. They said eating chocolate before diving is not only delicious, it's good for your health. Chocolate on the outside smooths the skin, and then they go on. Uh and let's see, where, where do they talk about the diving part? They said it reduces the physio- physiological stresses associated with decompression sickness, aiding a post-dive recovery. So are they saying that it makes you happy? So the stress factors that are related to conditions? Well, they're also saying research does show that chocolate prevents or helps prevent cardiovascular illness and high blood pressure, basically what we were talking about previously. And, uh, you know, those two items alone rank at the top of the medical conditions reported by divers, regardless of age. Yeah, so it says eating chocolate before a workout helps maintain blood glucose levels, higher insulin levels, and reduces oxidative stress, helping divers ex- exercise harder and longer, as well as build more muscle and recover faster. Diver. <coughs> Excuse me. Divers wishing to lose body fat will benefit by eating chocolate after a workout to avoid interfering in fat loss. Dark chocolate or cocoa is the best choice. It's important to consume it within 45 minutes after the exercise. Yeah, I don't think they're necessarily talking about the Snickers bar, but good quality chocolate is always what they're talking about in moderation. Yeah, it's in moderation. And uh, and the other thing you have to be careful of, which I think is why they say dark chocolate, because dark chocolate has the higher concentrations, but also, you know, sugar and other ingredients that are added in can counter effects. So you can lose some of the benefits you're gaining from it. But, you know, I'm, I'm willing to give it a try. You know, if I had to be on a chocolate diet, there, I could see right. those things. And in, a, in a pinch, if I can't get the dark chocolate, uh, my Snickers, I, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a good one. I, I, as a side note, though, did you realize dark chocolate is prohibitive for some people who have migraines? 
No, I didn't know that. I didn't either. I was reading some of the comments of the articles, and he said, my problem is I have migraines. Dark chocolate has prohibited me because of that one aspect. Now, why, I don't know, but I'm glad I'm not allergic to that, nor, uh, you know, that I would have migraines. Yeah, that'd be bad. Well, here, this one's out of the Stanford Observer. .co.uk, blind scuba diver discovers hidden talent for underwater photography. Scuba divers registered blind has discovered his talent as an underwater photographer. Mark Jeffrey has been a member of the British Subaquatic Club for 26 years and says despite losing his sight after being diagnosed with a generative eye condition, he feels his disability does not affect him underwater. The 48-year-old has stunned fellow divers at his local Stafford-upon-Avon Subaquatic Club with the quality of his photographs, including close-up encounters with anemone fish, uh, shark, crabs, and other wildlife. Mark started losing his vision after he was diagnosed with a hereditary disease, Stargardt's muscular dystrophy, SMD. The condition affects around 1 in 10,000 people. has left Mark with little neurocentral nervous, uh, central, I said central nervous, no central vision, leaving him to rely on peripheral vision. Mark, who previously worked at the construction industry as a digger driver, Still does limited laboring work. Explains, I was diagnosed at age 23 and progressively my vision has gotten worse and worse. There's no cure, sadly, but I refuse to let it get in the way of what I like doing, and that's diving. I've learned to adjust and cope with my loss of my central vision at times, but when I'm diving, I don't feel I have a disability. It gives me a sense of real freedom. So long as I can manage to use my peripheral vision to read my gauges and see my buddy diver, I'm absolutely fine. Mark dives as often as he can, but prefers to dive with people who understand his condition and who share his love for aquatic wildlife. He added, I've never had any complaints from people I dive with, but I do need help getting off and on the boats, for instance, and I have to be very careful on uh, quayside so I don't trip over ropes and things like that. It's important for people I dive with to understand my parameters. Fellow uh, Stratford SAC member Clive Shepard, who regularly dives with Mark, says some of the images of his buddy diver produced are the envy of club photographers. He is very patient. In many ways, his disability and lack of sight disappears when he gets in the water. I've done 80 dives together, and we both like underwater photography and have an interest in wildlife. Mark's underwater navigation skills are unbelievable. It's almost like a sixth sense. He's an exceptional diver and wonderful photographer. Despite his lack of vision, quite how he managed only with peripheral vision, I don't know. Well, kudos to him for getting out there and not stopping they don't show it. Do they show us a photo? Let me let me go through. There's five. Yeah, there's those are nice photos. Yeah, yeah. So uh, nice, you know, good to get out there and and keep active and diving. Uh, I can certainly understand. You wouldn't want to give it up. And then Europe is opening their first underwater museum this month. A new underwater museum featuring the artwork of British sculptor James. Uh, Decares Taylor is set to open later this month in the Canary Islands off the west, uh, off the coast of West Africa, located 14 meters beneath the sea in the island of, uh, what is that, Lanzarote? Pretty close. Yeah. Works for me. Yeah. We're, we're going to call it that. Uh, they have multiple installations, including one which references Europe's central refugee crisis. The work is not intended as a tribute or memorial to the many lives lost, but as a stark reminder of the collective responsibility of our global community, Taylor wrote in a statement on his website. The museum is not expected to be complete until January 2017. And I think he's the same artist who di- who's done the uh, the stuff there in the uh, Caymans of Mexico. Yeah, did you scroll through them? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think they're. Uh, I mean, he, he does a good job. 
and they give you something to look at. I like the one of of the Zodiac. That's neat. Yeah, that's the one that struck me real quick. Wonder who paid for it and how much that cost. Well, There's a lot of, lot norm, of stickers there. Normally his stuff is paid by uh, tourist commissions. I don't know how much control he gives them over what they can specify. But if you look, what I like about some of his is that they're going on a sand bottom, and then he makes a base for his statues that matches that bottom. So it's almost like the statues are, are really people. You know, I don't think I've really heard of a lot of diving off the Canary Islands. Do you? Um, no, I don't think so. Oh, we'll have to look into that and see what kind of reports we hear about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think something like this would be great in the Great Lakes as well. Uh, if I can get somebody to, I would do these. I'd make some sculptures. It'd be better than what's sitting on the bluff. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now. Yeah, okay. You just don't like modern oh, gosh. Art. You know, something that doesn't qualify as a structural element because it wouldn't stand up, then they go and they make it into art. It's like construction rejects. The SS, what was that, Parisier? I believe it is, yes. Yeah, the SS Parisier began life in June 1918 as a war buffalo built in Newcastle by the Newfoundland, oh, the North, why, how, why do I, where do I make up these town names? Northumberland <laughs> Shipbuilding Company. 122-meter or 400-foot-long World War One British Standard Class B ship with a beam of 15.9 meters or 52.3 feet. She drew 5,228 tons and had to be had uh, a 517-horsepower triple-expansion steam engine fed by three boilers. The ship was later sold to the Belgian Marine Company, where it was named the Persier, making 74 voyages between 1918 and 1939. And now... Let me let me stop here for a second. The yep. reason I, I thought this was interesting mm-hmm. was the next part was that this is the boat that took part in the evacuation of Dunkirk. Yes. Which to me gave it some historical significance. And as I was going through it, the other part, because she had been bombed, uh, fell back from the convoy, went ashore, they refloated her, fixed her up again. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was fun or interesting is how she sank. She was in a convoy. In 1945, near the end of the war, well, this was February, so six months. Right. And she had a crew of 64 on board, foodstuffs, among them 22,000, what was it, 2,200 tons of soap. Everybody needs to have soap. And it talked about armaments it had. But the bottom line is that, uh, let's see here, she she, uh, got hit by by a torpedo. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Now, after she, you know, she, she remained afloat, they started, um, as she started sinking, they got the people off, and they abandoned ship. Well, they got off the ship, and a faulty valve caused the engines to restart, while they abandoned ship, turned into propellers, which damaged two light bolts on her stern. Oh. So, the valve was secured, so somebody must have been on board to do that, got out again, then it the engines started by themselves again. Oh, jeez. <laughs> everybody was, was off the boat. And the last I saw was it started steaming towards shore, despite the damage, disappeared in the darkness. Tugs looked for her, and they never found her. And she was found again in May of 1969. Wow. So so from uh, 45. 40, 45 to 69, yeah. they didn't find her. Yeah. And she was found largely intact. Still with her guns on her stern, machine guns on the bridge. The bell was recovered in 1970. 
And the bell, remember when she first came out, she was called the war buffalo. Uh-huh. The bell's name never changed. So that helped confirm it was that ship and where it actually wound up at. Wow. And part of the cargo was salvaged, and part of the cargo they salvaged was the soap. <laughs> wow. It was interesting. So they salvaged the soap? Yep. yep. How did they do that? Were they So it wasn't sinking so quick they couldn't get it off then? Right. No, when it sank, they got the people off and the cargo went with it. I thought maybe the soap was floating around or there were a bunch of rubber duckies or something. That... <laughs> it didn't tell you anything about the rubber duckies. Or oh, okay. But they said the shallowest part was 24 meters. Mm-hmm. And it said uh, a mix to wreck an ideal nitrox dive, give you a little extra time to explore it. That's a, It's a nice looking vessel. Right. And they said at this point, though, it's collapsed. Mm-hmm. The whole wreck has collapsed to the port. But they're talking about the boilers and stuff are still on the seabed. So there's still a lot to look at. Yeah, it's it's probably going to be like uh, that sand sucker that we we dive out of uh, Michigan City. Yeah, you know, a lot of pieces all over, but not much together. Yeah, it's it's fun to dive. Well, have you been following this show that just started on the History Channel? Uh, it's called the Billion Dollar Wreck. I've heard some stuff about that, but I haven't been tracking it. No. Yeah. So what it is, it's it's they're they're diving on a wreck, and the first episode starts with them getting to the wreck and actually getting a diver back down on it. But it's 50 miles off the coast of Nantucket. 250 feet down is the RMS Republic. And the guy who found it and got salvage rights actually went to prison because he shot and killed, I think, one. It must have been a partner or an investor. They're, you know, the kind of how they're laying the story out on the show, it's it's not quite clear. Yeah, because it says 1987, Martin raised millions of dollars for an expedition to recover the gold. He, but he ended up searching the wrong section of the massive vessel, and came home empty-handed. It left him broke, and and in, in lawsuits, his yeah, his wife uh, left him, and he was in prison. So now he's going back with his son, and they've got they've got a, a nice vessel and ROV and everything, but the ship has broken down quite a bit. So he thinks he knows where it is, uh, but the ship. Well, they they know where the ship is, but the, what what he's saying that there's gold on it. It's called. I'd get a barge and I'd clamshell that sucker. I would think so because he mean, found it, it with the bodies. Clamshell it, bring it up, and sort it out on the surface. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, basically that's what they did with the Pawatuck. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know why he didn't. It's but it's a it's a White Star liner, you know, the same line as the Titanic. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a mess seeing it. So I don't know why they're not the they're just not clamshelling it, but uh, they've got an archaeologist on board and they're they're going after it. So the the sons helped them get together another crew and they're going at it again. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of questioning why because yeah, they he he's got information that makes them believe there's a billion dollars in gold. Uh, they said it's reputed cargo of one thousand, but not one thousand, one hundred fifty thousand American. Eagle gold coins. So there's, that's why they're calling it a billion dollars. They said that'd be a billion dollars in today's. So that's uh, something I'm going to be watching. They got some diving. They got a tech diver and they, and they give you some clips of upcoming episodes. And at one of them, they have a diver who's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. And then he runs out of air. So they're just giving you, teasing you some of the high stress situations that are coming up. And a Russian uh, geographical society scuba diver to make deep ice dives in the White Sea. The Russian uh, Geographic Society's research diving team plans to make the deepest ice dive ever 
to a depth of 100 meters in the White Sea. The expedition, the White Sea, will last from February 29th to March 7th. The divers plan to reach a depth of 100 meters, which is the deepest ice dive ever, part of the 13 seas of Russia large-scale project and key preparation stage for the expedition in the Arctic region, said RIA uh, Novosti News Agency reported the Russian Geographical Society's branch in some Russian town. Ten people take pay, take part in our search. Their key staff of the diving team led by Dmitry uh, Shilter. In addition to researchers from uh, Tatarstan, other participants will be divers. Oh, I'm not even going to go through these names. And a member of the Jacques Cousteau team. That's the only reason I read it. I thought that was kind of interesting. I can't believe that the technique's going to be any different other than under the ice. is, is It's a deep dive. Right. It doesn't say if it's going to be on scuba. Or if it's going to be uh, air. Surface-supplied? You know, for supplied air. Well, what, you know, uh, one of the things about ice diving is it's got some of the same conditions that technical diving has in that you can't instantly go to the surface. Well, ice diving is a, is a technical dive. Right. Uh, well, the, and and the, the task that you're doing is uh, the, the degree of difficulty increases with the different tasks that you're doing. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is does it multiply? I mean, does it a technical dive under ice make it significantly more? Because you really have to consider the same things for an ice dive as a technical dive, meaning you just can't pop to the surface. It's kind of like cave diving and technical diving. So other than it being extremely cold temperatures and you do have a limited window where you can come up, um, you know, I'm surprised they're saying that 100 meters is, is some sort of record. That's 300 feet. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't think it's the ice so much because even when you don't have the ice cover, you still got the same temperature at 300 feet. Right, true. So from that aspect, it's not. But I think staging the dive on the surface in Arctic conditions is the real challenge. It could be. It's probably drilling through or making a hole 6 to 10 feet deep to penetrate the ice. Well, to me, I think there's just some advantages could be. I mean, you could have better conditions. I mean, you could either have a really bad snow squall, but you're most likely not going to have rough seas. Huh? Interesting. Yep. But I'm surprised, again, at 100 meters being a record. Uh, seems like other people would have attempted it. Maybe they just nobody felt the desire. <clears throat> and then here we've got one inflator, another one from Divers Alert Network. Uh, inflator runaway causes ascent under thick ice. And I picked this one out because we've been doing ice dives the last couple of weeks. And part of the uh, pre-dive briefing was being aware of if you burp your BC a little bit, trying to get a little more air in it at depth, mm-hmm. the possibility exists that if it stays open, you're coming up real fast, and bumping your head on five, six inches of ice is going to hurt. Oh, yeah. By the same token, we mentioned, does everybody know the procedures and have practiced it, that if your dry suit button also malfunctions, if you, if you tweak it a little bit and it stays on, you're coming up fast again. So we wanted to make sure people were aware of the problems with that and had a contingency plan before they got into the water. Yeah, in this and article they talk about somebody experiencing it. Uh, you know, I hit the ice overhead and then followed my line back to the hole. The power inflator was still pliable, however bubbles were coming out from around its rim and depressing it did nothing. The vest continued to inflate and purge out the overflow valve until my friends and the surfers were able to disconnect the power inflator hose. My rapid ascent to the top of the ice resulted in a ruptured eardrum. So you do have some health risks, 
in addition to hitting your head on the ice. But I've never heard of a ruptured eardrum on the way up, always on the way down. Didn't you find that odd? Rapid ascent caused a ruptured eardrum? You're right. Yeah, um, now you mentioned it. I don't, I don't think I've, unless you had another condition going on. First block. Now, if you had a reverse block, I can understand that. Yeah. I attempted to equalize my ears as I ascended, but the cold water made it impossible in the short time I had. See, I've, I've never had a problem equalizing on an ice dive. And I think part of that is because unless you have a cold, you know, you could, if you had a cold and you were taking medication, maybe a little congested. Then you shouldn't be diving. True. Hmm. Yeah, that, that is, that is interesting. But we did that. We did make sure people knew that. And we, even though we did not have an auto inflate issue, mm-hmm. they did not monitor their ascent rate as well as they should have. And I tried to stress that if you did not, you know, don't put your hand up because you're going to break your hand. Rotate over so you hit it with your tank, not your head. Oh, that's a good good point. And that's what they did. It was only like for them. I watched them come up because it was clear. And it's like, you're going to hit the freaking ice. He rolled over so he hit the he hit it with his tank first. But it's like, you got to be aware of that and know what you're going to do if you have a problem. So that was this weekend? Last weekend. Okay, last weekend. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and talk about the ice dive then. Um, so you had... Here in Michigan last week was unseasonably warm to have the beginning of February and 50-degree temperatures. Was it 50? Maybe 40s. Well, last week wasn't. Last week was on the surface uh, with wind chill factor was 22 degrees. Without the wind chill, it was nice. It was 32. You could almost be out there with no gloves, which sounds funny for anybody not up in Michigan. My, my daughter's in Florida. She was talking about, oh, my God, it's so cold. It was 37 this morning. It's what you're used to. Yeah, you, you get conditioned. Right. And we did have five inches of ice. And uh, we we did have a good dive plan, a good dive briefing before we went out. Uh, we had safety diver on a line, ready to roll. And uh, then we did individual divers, maximum 15 minutes, between 10 and 15 with a maximum time down. Was that something you agreed on beforehand just to give oh, yes. everybody a shot? A I, shot? Uh, part of it was because I didn't know the experience level of a couple of the people. Okay. And then uh, we made, I did the tending for the people I wasn't sure of. Mm-hmm. And we made sure we knew what they were going to do, when they were going to do it, and the line pull specific for for them. If you go down there, like, you know, we did the lineless dive. Yes. Well, when you dive that same area with the lines, you've got all the cabling for the platform, all the cabling for the telephone booth, and the side cabling that goes from the lines out to the other artifacts on the bottom yeah there's there's a lot of entanglement hazards absolutely and there was no way in blazes i wanted any of my guys to get entangled because they got carried away and the visibility was only 15 20 feet yeah i saw some photos that uh look at kevin had posted yep and you know it wasn't bad but it wasn't that clear like we've had in the past and the other is you know how we always say go towards the light Uh uh-huh we had no ice we had no um snow cover so the ice was translucent and it's like, uh, where's the hole? If you didn't have your line, you would have had a hard time finding the light to go back to. Yes. Yeah, and it's good to, to dive appropriate techniques for the conditions. So that was not a, right. a super clear. Yeah, it was a fun dive. It was just for that. You know, you, you wanted at least five-minute downtime so you get acclimated and you feel mm-hmm. like you got something done. Yeah. But we didn't want anybody to stress out. We didn't want anybody to get too cold. Um, everyone had a real good time and we had a good time afterwards 
having lunch, talking about what a good time we had. Yeah. Now, did any did you have whether well, it was a one diver in the water at a time, or did you get a couple two divers? No, we only had one in the water at the time because I wanted uh I could see the guys twenty feet away from the surface, mm-hmm. so I had good down visibility. So when they came up, because most everybody went down, did a foray around the side of the platform and around, came up, and then did a sweep under the ice around because you could look through the ice, mm-hmm. you could track you on the ice. Yes, and and that's good because uh. For a lot of divers, the ice dive might be the first time they've ever dove alone under the water. Because if you're if you're following training and you're you're diving in teams with a dive buddy, you know, with ice on a line and you only got a single diver in, that's that's a different experience. Yeah, I'm always afraid somebody's gonna do something stupid with their line, so we double hooked them so you could not inadvertently become unhooked. Right. You know, and uh and then you've got other divers there's a safety diver who could go down if somebody like if you couldn't pull them up. You know, if they if they signaled and they couldn't come up, you could send somebody down to correct to detangle them. Right, but we're we're going to avoid that by not doing that. And again, this weekend, uh, this weekend is going to be another nice one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to do a little different as we have some nice staging platforms to put in the ice this time. Now, this is going to be Lake 16 again. Also, be Lake 16. Uh, if the visibility improved, it would be nice. But I'm not going to do any lineless with anybody I do not know. Right. Uh, we had bailouts available, so if they didn't have one, we had, uh, you know, a pony tank. Mm-hmm. We had it so you could sling it on your harness. But, uh, this one will be a platform we put in. We've used it years ago. So you can stand on the platform and your waist is still above the ice so you can put your gear on while you're on the platform. Okay. Then step off and getting back out will be just as easy. It's good to have that because if you had a, a disabled diver or somebody got hurt, how do you get them out? It's a pain. This way, it facilitates if you had to rescue somebody or they couldn't get out of the ice very well, uh, it facilitates getting them out in a safer safer manner. Now, you mentioned divers that you didn't know. Were there divers that weren't muddies who were there or they just knew were muddies? Actually, the the majority of people were not muddies. Uh, The only muddies were myself and Kevin. Okay. Uh, We had two rescue divers from an ice rescue team came out when they get some time in. Oh, nice. Uh, you know, it was good to compare notes on what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. Well, also, it's nice for them to see what we're doing. It gives them a little bit of confidence in that we're just not Rambo's throwing people under the ice. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. then also they can give some input. You know, if they see something that really makes them uncomfortable, they can say, you know, uh, you know, we find that this this works better. You may have to try it. Was there? Did they have any concerns with our technique? None. Excellent. And that's that's what we strive for is let's do it the right way. Yeah. Everybody yeah. goes in, comes out in one piece. Well, and you mentioned there was because I saw photos and you can see lawns with no snow on it, and there was there was looked like there was water on top of the ice. Uh, after we got the first couple of divers out, we had a significant sag, which surprised me for five inches of ice, and the wind came up so hard at one point, all the water on one side of the hole. Mm-hmm. went back into the, the hole and continued on the other side to clear the water away. Wow. Was, oh, yeah, it was really funny. It's like, now that's windy. Yeah, I've I've not seen that before. Yeah, you could have probably stood up and, and let it skate you around a little bit. Yeah, I, I've seen that where we've had so many people on the ice that we've depressed it, you know, within 10, 20 feet of the hole. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it looked pretty soggy. Well, that's great. 
It's good to get an ice dive in. I'm, I'm jealous. I'm not going to be able to make the Saturday dive. I've got other commitments, but uh, at least the Viz wasn't too perfect. I don't I don't feel like I missed too much of a, <laughs> of a great you dive. You still missed a good ice dive, though. Oh. Better than Singer. Yes. Yeah, I'll have to agree with you there. Well, it was nice. Uh, so are these potential members for the Mud Club, or are they just uh, people from other areas? Who They're from the uh, Kalamazoo area. So uh-huh. it's a long, I mean, you got two clubs in that area. Yeah. Uh, yeah. we had one from up north about hour and a half drive. I can't think mm-hmm. of Spring Lake. Okay. Yeah. He, he captured us on Facebook, said coming down. So he came on down though with us. Yeah. Yeah. We've, I've, I've seen that before. We get a lot of people who either listen to this program or they follow the Mud Club site, which is mudclub.scubaobsessed.com and, uh, or, or follow us on Facebook and they see the activity going on and get to be involved. It's, it's a nice thing about diving. You, you get to meet some good people. We had no free flows. Uh, nobody had any trouble with their gear. Nothing froze up on the equipment. So it was a good dive. Excellent. Well, that's good. Uh, is anybody traveling to any other locations? I haven't heard. I, I didn't make the last meeting, so I didn't know if we have a, a bunch of people who are hitting Florida. Well, on the 16th, uh, the next club meeting, we'll be talking about who's going to go to uh, the Shipwreck Festival in Ann Arbor because that's next Saturday. Yeah. Not this Saturday, but Saturday after. Yep. And then uh, the week after that is Our World Underwater. That's the 27th on a Saturday. So we don't know who's going. Does anybody want to carpool? You know, I may be actually able to make that Our World Underwater. Uh, I can't do Ann Arbor because we've got robotics. That's the last build weekend. And we've got a kind of a little test meet where we get a bunch of the different uh, teams together to just try out and see how they're going. Hopefully we got something put together. We're in a, we're in a rush to build. Uh, if you want to see that website to kind of see what uh, the robotics team is about, it's the first robotics competition, and the website is the Green Engineers. Uh, let me spell that. Uh, it's kind of a play on green is the school of color and engineers, so it's uh, G-R-E-E-N-G-I-N-E-E-R-Z dot org, uh, and you can see photos of them building the robot. But I, I have to say I'm really impressed. I I knew almost nothing about this a year ago. Uh, both my kids have gotten involved, and it's quite an involved thing to build a robot. So that's been taking my time. As soon as that's done, I hope to be able to get a little bit more time in on uh, some scuba diving. Very good. Well, let's see. I think uh, we're to about that time of the show. Unless you got something you want to plug. Uh, as always, we want to thank uh, WRVO Radio. Reno Viola Outdoor Network for putting us on the air again another year. Uh, you can listen to us on TalkShoe or show 73759. Uh, we're recording live, but we've not been doing the chat room, so we're trying to find some alternatives out for that. The website's www.scubobsess.com. And as always, we love for you to put those five-star reviews out there. It gets people to listen to the show. And we're going to be doing some things with the website. Yeah, I've, I promised that before, and we're, we're going to get back onto it. The video... I've had a couple false starts. I think I got to retry something different. I still want to do some video product, but uh, it just—it's a lot of time. I—I I actually need about two more people to help me out to be able to get video because it's with podcasts I can engineer and have multiple people and edit. That's not a problem. But for video to really be done the right way, you need to have a team of two or three people who aren't on the air uh, helping produce and engineer. So that's some of the challenges I'm working on now. Uh, you got anything you want to plug, Mac? Uh, no, but if you're up here and you want to go diving, hop on Facebook, give us a shout, come on down. Yep. 
And hopefully, if you're out there, look for the guys walking around with the mud, the mud on their jackets or their hats uh, at either the Shipwreck Festival or at Our World Underwater. We're usually only there on a Saturday for two or three hours. Um, most of us are not staying overnight. Actually, I shouldn't say that. They're having an interesting program on Saturday night that some people are talking about. Starts at 6, goes to about 1 o'clock in the morning. Wow, 1 o'clock? Uh, it's a reserve thing. you got to say you're going to be there. I think it's put on by a dive shop. Uh, free food. So it's like, oh, well, wow. maybe I, I may have to go to this. Well, 1 o'clock still not too late. In fact, it's the best time to leave Chicago. <laughs> Sometimes no uh, you don't have too much traffic. Uh, Okay, well that's that's interesting. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna see if I can do our world underwater. I I need to do some sort of dive show. I keep on thinking I might want to present on it, but that's such a commitment to uh, not so much to presenting, but to to have a booth. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it's that time. So in 1957, several cities were vying to host the 19. 19- 64 Winter Olympics. Candidates had been eliminated to the point where only two were left. One was Singapore and the other was never France. The French venue had obvious advantage for the games, but the Singaporeans were eager to host the games in their country, so they developed a snowmaking machine. Because of technical glitches, the machine produced snow only part of the time. The rest of the time it produced steam. Well, you can't ski on steam. So they made a last-ditch effort to perfect the machine, knowing the deadline for the decision from the committee was nigh. To bring moral support and entertainment to workers, they brought in Elvis Presley, who mounted the stage and said, Well, today's the day your machine must produce snow. If it belters out steam, the games will go to France. So this is it. It's snow or nevers. I don't know how to groan. (laughs) (laughs) So you really need a long groan. Yeah. So we did promise them being bad, didn't we? You're carrying on the tradition. (laughs) So on that note, until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.